Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 257. Today is February 3rd, 2018. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. And in today's episode, I want to talk to you about the precipitous drop that we saw in the S&P 500 this week, really across all markets, the bond market, the stock market, the tech market, gold, silver, commodities, just about everything was down. In fact, with the S&P being down over 2% yesterday alone, that was almost as much as any move that we've seen in the S&P 500 over the last, oh, I don't know, 13, 14 months. And overall, off of the high, the S&P 500 is down nearly 4%, something like, I don't know, 3.8, 3.9%. Certainly a lot more volatility and a larger decline than anything we've seen since Trump's been elected. And so does this mean that a crash is just around the corner, that we're going into a market correction or a bear market? Is this the time to panic and bury all your money in the backyard? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And before I even get started, let me assure you that I have no crystal ball. I can't predict the future. I have no idea what's going to happen next week, next month, next year. And the important thing to realize here is that neither does anyone else. And so I'm sure yesterday and over this weekend and into next week, if you watch the media at all, you are going to be bombarded with prognosticators telling you exactly what's going to happen. Now, some of them are going to be perma bulls, which are going to tell you that the market's going on to all new highs. Others will be perma bears that tell you, no, we're just around the corner from an economic collapse. These are the same cast of characters that we see day in and day out. And the more conviction and the more determinant their arguments are, well, that's the more skeptical you should be because none of us can predict the future. So those people are doing one of two things. They're either deluding themselves or they're lying to you. You be the judge. And I'm going to digress here for a second because I earlier this week, uh, I've been in investor meetings all week. I'm out of town traveling, and I happened to talk uh, this week to a very intelligent man with a long history in emerging markets. He's not a well-known person uh, to the general public, so you wouldn't necessarily recognize his name. But if I told you uh, the firm that he worked for, you would be very familiar with them. They're a, a huge investment firm. The reason this comes to mind right now is that the story that this man was telling me about where he felt that emerging markets are headed this year, was very confident, very positive. He had all the numbers and charts and analysis and backup data for why he felt that emerging markets are going to do very well this year. Incidentally, I tend to agree with him. I've been invested in emerging markets for over a year. I'm continuing to hold that position. And if anything, I probably you know, plan to add to that position because I do think that emerging markets are likely to have a good year in 2018. What I want to bring up, though, is that this gentleman that I was talking to, this analyst of international markets, this man that is extremely confident that it's going to be a very good year to invest in emerging markets, and this man that has been, I don't know, probably spent 20 or more years of his professional life studying and being an analyst in emerging markets, he will be the first person to tell you that he has been very pro and very bullish on, on emerging markets for the last, I don't know, six years. And you know what? Of these last six years, he's only been right one year. Last year was the only year in the last six years that emerging markets have really done well. 
And so his story this year from a technical and a fundamental and overall geopolitical analysis that he has on emerging markets has been wrong five out of the last six years. But that didn't stop him from being incredibly right last year. And although he believes in his numbers and he's confident about what he's projecting, he will be the first person to admit to you that he's been wrong. And although he is very positive about emerging markets performing well this year, he cannot predict the future. And that's why he would encourage people to invest with caution and to diversify their portfolio. How about I digress? Let's get back into this week's correction. And before we even directly talk about this week, let's go back and review some things that have happened over the last, I don't know, two or three weeks. First off, do you remember, I don't know, I guess it was maybe three weeks ago, the prognosticators were coming out of the woodwork to tell you that there was going to be a government shutdown, that the Democratic opposition party had Trump over a barrel, Trump had fallen down in the polls, he had, uh, I don't know, I think the, the worst presidential rating of any president uh, within the first year of the presidency, he was always sticking his foot in his mouth, and that the opposition was going to be able to force some issues, they were going to shut down the government, they were going to make Trump look like a fool, and this would harken back to the days of 2011 when the Republicans had tried that against the sitting president at the time, who was Obama. And if you remember what happened, it was bad news for the stock market. It was really the only time in the last oh, six and a half, seven years that we got a solid, hard pullback in the market. And in fact, that government shutdown, I believe it was August of 2011, had put such a ripple effect through the international markets that the rating agencies actually downgraded the U.S. dollar because there was fear that maybe the government would default on its debt. The U.S. dollar fell like a rock and took, oh, I don't know, a good two, two and a half years, maybe even three years to start recovering. Do you remember all that? Well, just three weeks ago, people were saying, hey, that same thing is likely to happen. Well, what happened? Oh, I don't know. I think it was a Friday afternoon. The government shut down. And in less than 48 hours, Trump had branded the event as the Schumer shutdown and had branded his opposition with the moniker of uh, something like they cared more about illegal immigrants than they did about American citizens. And what happened? Well, the opposition party folded like a cheap suit. Now, hey, let me step back here. I'm not giving you political commentary one way or the other here trying to sway you to the R's or the D's. I don't like either party. I'm simply giving you observations of what I hear the rhetoric being, but then what I actually see happening in the market, because what I've learned about personal freedom and individual emancipation over the years is that the best way that you can ensure your own political freedom is to have more money. And my concept of wealth steading is to have freedom through wealth, not through a political affiliation. So, in what I'm saying here, don't think that I'm leaning left or right or one way or the other. I see no virtue in either party. But the facts are the facts, and people keep underestimating Donald Trump. A couple weeks ago, what he did to the opposition was exactly the same thing that he did to the Republican candidates that ran against him during the primaries and the same thing he did to Hillary Clinton during the general election. I had an episode about this, oh, I don't know, six months ago or something, where I talked about Donald Trump and his ability to negotiate. And again here, I'm not talking about uh, the virtues of that. 
I'm just simply saying that as an observer, I find it very effective. And so people may lose their minds over the, some of the tweets he puts out. They may think that they're rude or racist or whatever they are. But the fact of the matter is, the man is moving forth his political agenda. And his tactics are pretty straightforward and very predictable. Just like he dubbed the government shutdown, the Schumer shutdown, those are the same type sound bites and little phrases that he coins to put doubt in people's mind against his opposition. Do you remember when Jeb Bush was the Republican establishment shoe-in, you know, the person that was inaugurated to be running as the nominee in 2016? Well, the real turning point against Jeb Bush was when Trump said that he was low energy. Do you remember that? He coined that phrase. That summed up Jeb Bush, and he was gone. He did similar things to other candidates. Do you remember with just a few words how he decimated Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio? I don't remember if he gave him a moniker, but he totally blew Rubio out of the market when he insinuated that Rubio's dad was somehow connected to the Kennedy assassination. Now, this wasn't based on any fact. It was just a line that Trump threw out there, but it worked. And what did he do to Hillary Clinton? The person that was thought to be unbeatable, he summed her up and disarmed her simply by giving her the moniker of Crooked Hillary. Don't underestimate Trump and his tactics. In that previous episode I did where I talked about his negotiating, I talked about how he disarmed and changed the whole argument about building a wall on the Mexican border. He won that debate, not with facts, not with logic, not with reason, not even with emotion. He won that debate, and the reason I think it was the turning point for him not only getting the nomination for the Republican Party, but then ultimately going on and winning the general election, he won the ultimate argument on immigration from Mexico simply by changing the dialogue about the nature of the wall itself. Originally, the argument was that a wall would never be built, and it was crazy talk, and Trump was a crazy anti-immigrant, you know, racist, or, what, or however he was being branded. And this was pretty much by the elites of both parties. How did he change that? He changed the dialogue by maneuvering and not even talking about how the wall would be built, but rather how the wall would be financed, and he said that he would make the Mexicans pay for it. Well, overnight, that immediately changed the debate from the feasibility or the practicality of building the wall to the argument of who would pay for the wall. And so therefore, in the public mind, the matter was settled. The wall was going to be built. Now it was only of who would pay for it. And so thus, Trump won that argument. That's the way this man operates. It's very effective and he keeps winning. He did that with the government shutdown. There was no pullback in the market. And in fact, the market went up. Trump then went on to Davos, where prior to going, he sent out a preemptive strike by announcing that he would put tariffs on certain products being imported into the U.S. That sent more rumors that, you know, he would go to Davos, he would be an anti-globalist, he would spark some type of a, a trade war. And also at the same time, you had the Secretary of Treasury that he was in favor of a weaker dollar. That sparked off more fears of a, a currency war. 
And so the battle lines were drawn that Trump was going to go do something crazy and uh, get the U.S. into all types of trade wars when he went to Davos. Well, that's not at all what happened. He went there, he read from the teleprompter, and he changed his debate from being one of only America first to being one of invest in America. And the stock market went up. And in fact, all global markets went up. And when it comes to political instability and particularly the things that are tweeted out of the White House, I really think you can ignore most of that rhetoric as simply being rhetoric. Let's go back and and think about Davos and all the concerns about Trump kicking off either a trade war or a currency war. And this is just in the last few weeks, let alone what we've heard for the last year. But look at the reality of the situation. What did Trump do just a couple weeks ago? Did he come out and put nationalistic tariffs on, you know, specific countries or whole sectors of the economy? No. What did he do? He came out and he put tariffs on washing machines and solar panels. Now, do you think he did that to come down hard on, you know, countries like China or whoever he may perceive is is violating world trade agreements? And that he was really trying to take a harsh hand and that there's going to be more of these tariffs to follow and that it is going to set off uh, some type of a global trade war. Do you think that's what happened? Or do you think maybe it was a politically calculated move to shore up his base for these upcoming midterm elections? Think about it. What did he put tariffs on? Did he put them on automobiles? Did he put them on all kinds of items that are coming in from, you know, Canada or Mexico in terms of the NAFTA agreement? Did he put it on major uh, areas of intellectual property? Did he do any of those things? No. What did he hit? Washing machines and solar panels. And so what impact does that have? Well, let's look at washing machines. Oh, sure, that may hurt some some manufacturers in Mexico or maybe some people in China or Korea. But really, what was the impact? The impact was on labor union workers in the state of Ohio, which happens to be a swing state and the home of Whirlpool, a big manufacturer of washing machines that's going to benefit from that tariff. And what about solar panels? Well, you know, to me, that was kind of probably like a little two-pronged approach there three-pronged. You know, Trump got to stick it to the Chinese a little bit because they've been flooding the market with cheap solar panels. At the same time, he probably got to poke the eye out of some of the the green weenies that want renewable energy. And they're, you know, they're not going to vote for Trump anyways. So he got to stick it to them because by putting a tariff on these solar panels, that's obviously going to raise the overall cost of renewable energy. So, you know, no love loss there with Trump and the environmentalists. At the end of the day, what's it really do? Well, by raising the price on solar panels and therefore de facto on renewable energy, it's a hidden benefit to the coal companies and the coal producers, and those people happen to be Trump supporters. Look at Trump. He was way down negative in the polls just three weeks ago. Now he's back up at 49%. That was after he managed to to, uh, fend off the government shutdown. He had a good appearance at Davos. The stock market went up to all-time highs, you know, just last week. And so consequently, Trump's numbers went up to 49%. And where is his absolute highest approval rating of, of any state? Well, it's in the state of West Virginia, where all the coal miners are. So it's no doubt that Trump 
put tariffs on things like washing machines for the Ohio workers and on solar panels to benefit the, the coal miners of places like West Virginia. He's shoring up his base. He's trying to get as many of them to the polls this fall as he can. And that's what I think you can expect between now and the November elections. I do not think that Trump is going to be motivated to say anything or tweet anything or introduce any type of governmental policies that are going to directly degrade the stock market or global trade. You know, certainly I don't think we're going to have a trade war. What I think we're going to do is that he's going to communicate things that he believes will fire up his base. And if you think that's wrong or evil, well, you know what? It's going to be counteracted on the other side by Nancy Pelosi and Maxine Waters and Chuck Schumer and all the opposition party. And so good or bad, left or right, red or blue, it doesn't matter to me. I'm going to seek my own personal freedom by trying to make as much money as I can the reason we saw such a big pullback in global markets at the end of this week was because that the U.S. jobs number were higher than anticipated, and more importantly even than that, was that there might be an uptick in the hourly wage. The fact that one month or one week or one quarter we might get a little uptick in this should not be surprising, particularly when the United States is in the process of becoming a dominant marker player in the export of energy in the form of fossil fuels, that being the export of petroleum products, of coal products, and of natural gas. These are high-ticket, high-dollar items. They're bringing foreign money into the U.S. at the same time they're causing the U.S. to have to outlay more of their own capital to bring in oil from places like, you know, Saudi Arabia or, or other OPEC uh, countries, or even Canada or Mexico. So it's helping us not only in decreasing our imports, but in increasing our exports. These also lead to higher dollar middle class and blue collar or, uh, you know, skill level type jobs of people that work in the oil industry or the coal industry or making steel for pipeline, things of that nature, truck drivers that have to haul this stuff around. These effects are even more amplified when you consider not only that the United States is producing more oil and more gas, but that the price is also recovering. So again, you have a two-pronged approach there. We're producing more of it, and with oil up at about uh, you know, $65, $66 a barrel, what that means for energy companies is both growing the top and the bottom line. That's going to have a ripple effect through the economy. That's going to create more higher paying jobs. And so that will give a boost to GDP and that will give a boost to hourly wages and take home pay and things of that nature. But, and this is a big but, it is not necessarily a precursor to runaway inflation because when you dig down into those numbers, you see that these increases are fairly insignificant. Yes, oil production in the U.S. is ramping up. I expect it to go a lot higher, but I don't necessarily expect the price of oil to keep going up. In fact, I think we're headed back down for the very reason that the only reason that we're at 66 or $65 a barrel now is because the OPEC countries, along with Russia, have been able to curtail their production. And so the only reason that we're seeing somewhat of a balance in the supply and demand of oil is not that we don't have an excess of supply or it's not that the demand for oil is outstripping the supply. It's simply that the suppliers have cut back on production. 
That's everybody other than the U.S. I don't think that's going to last forever. And so I don't think we're going to see oil go up to 80 or 90 or $100 a barrel. And really, when you look at runaway inflation, it generally happens because you have a major run-up in the price of energy. The other thing that I think is very misleading about this jobs report is that, you know, the jobs came in at something like 200000 Well, that's not runaway job growth. When you look at all the millennials that are coming into the job market and you look at the baby boomers that are retiring, we need something like 200, 250,000 jobs added to the economy just to keep up with the pace of the U.S. demographics. So there's nothing inflationary there. And then even when you look at the rise in income and take-home pay and, and things of this nature that supposedly have bounced up unexpectedly this month, and that's really where the fear of inflation was set in and why the market reacted so violently on Friday... Well, when you consider those wage increases, they're very bifurcated, just like the jobs market has been for the last decade. Yes, on average, some take-home pays are going up, but it's not across the board. It's not being shared equally. The income earners at the very high end of the wage spectrum are getting richer, and the lower segments are either stagnating or taking home less pay. In fact, when you looked at Friday's number, what did you see with the unemployment rate among minorities and particularly among African-Americans? Well, you saw that the unemployment rate actually went up, particularly African-Americans that were in the younger ages, you know, 18 to 35. That is not indicative of a runaway inflationary economy where we're going to see huge wage growth. And make no mistake about it, the reason we saw a major pullback in the stock market this week was because of the fear of wage inflation. In fact, all the commodities were down. Oil was down, gold was down, silver was down, copper was down. The only concern was that perhaps wages were going up. Again, when you have a runaway inflationary economy, it isn't just wage inflation, it's energy and commodities going up. Well, that's not what is happening right now. And I would argue that wages aren't even going up in real terms. Wages are just trying to keep pace. And what's funny about the whole situation about wages going up and that having an adverse effect on the stock market, this gets back to what I've talked about over the last four or five years where I keep trying to explain to people that what is good for Wall Street is not necessarily good for Main Street. In fact, generally, they're opposites. And so when you look back... Three years ago, when people were worried that we weren't generating enough jobs and that incomes were so low and they were worried and calling for you know a big crash in the stock market, I would make the counter argument and say, what's bad for Main Street is actually good for Wall Street. You see, when companies are paying their workers less money, that means higher profits for corporate America. Higher profits for corporate America mean higher stock prices. And so this week, when there's a fear that maybe wages are going to go up, what that is implying is that corporate profits are going to go down. And my argument is that is not what's happening. For the most part, fourth quarter profits have been right on. They've been what's expected. Companies are not only reporting better bottom line numbers, they're reporting better top line numbers. Sales are up globally. And so again, I think that the Concerns about inflation and wage growth are way overstated, way overhyped. 
And then if anything, the problem to corporate bottom lines is not going to come from wage growth, but rather from an increase in borrowing costs. And correspondingly, that's what happened this week as well. We saw the 10-year Treasury go up to about 285 And while that uh, can be concerning, I mean, for a long time now, I've been saying that we are in a bond bubble. We've seen for the last 30, 35 years, a real generational degradation in interest rate yields. But at some point that had to bottom out. We were getting, you know, near 0% in the United States. Other developed countries went to negative rates. And so, you know, you figure when you get to a negative rate, you have to be somewhere at the bottom point of the, of the curve. And I think that's what we've hit over the last year or two. And so when rates are so low, you have to expect that at some point they will go up. And on a historical basis... on the 10-year Treasury is not, uh, you know, doomsday apocalyptic. Yes, it's a higher rate than it was, say, six months ago, but it's certainly not a higher rate than it was four years ago. The economy has lived with and flourished with interest rates at 3%. And in fact, I would argue that interest rates at or above 3% could be even more healthy for the overall economy than these lower interest rates have been. The problem here is is simply like, uh, you know, taking a drug or alcohol away from an addict. You know, if you drink too much alcohol, it's going to ruin your liver. It's going to ruin your health. And so over the long term, it's best to be avoided. But when you when you initially take that alcohol away from an alcoholic, they go through pain, through withdrawal symptoms. And so, yes, as interest rates start to go up, and as they start to get close to 3%, you're going to see these zombie companies that have been relying on cheap interest rates. They're going to feel pain. Some of them are going to go bankrupt. You're going to see that not only in the United States, but you're going to see that in emerging markets and across the entire global economy. But over the long run, that will really be beneficial for the economy. And now I'm going to talk a little bit out of both sides of my mouth here, because while I do think that it would be healthy to have interest rates of, say, around 3%, I don't necessarily think we're going to get there. Yeah, they shot up quick this week, but, you know, they can fall back down just as quickly. There is so much easy money floating around from all the central banks. It includes the Federal Reserve here in the United States, as well as the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan, People's Bank of China. There are tens of trillions of dollars of easy central bank money still readily flowing through the system. That's not going to dry up overnight. And so are we headed to 4, 5, 6% interest rates in the 10-year treasury? I don't think so. I think we'll be hard-pressed to get to 4%. And I really do think that 3, 3 and a quarter percent that is over the long run going to be much more healthy for the economy than what we've seen with sub 2% over the last decade. So from an inflation level, from a wage level, from a fundamental level, I think that not only the United States stock market and economy, but all the global economies seem to be hitting on all cylinders. I think that particularly in the United States, we do have high valuations in the stock market. But even having said that, those high valuations in stocks are pale in comparison to the high valuations we have in the bond markets. So right now, I would feel more comfortable being in equities, high-quality blue-chip equities, 
as opposed to being in government or corporate bonds or certainly junk bonds I'd be avoiding right now. And in looking at the stock market, particularly the S&P 500, I think that there's even a case that from a technical nature, the levels we're at now are certainly sustainable. Now, again, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict the future. And I would never guarantee that we wouldn't see a, you know, a 10% drop on the stock market from here. In fact, I could argue that if there's enough hysteria brewing over the next few days or maybe even few weeks, we could see a 10% pullback in the S&P 500. And that would correlate perfectly with the drop down to right around the 200-day moving average on the S&P 500. That's almost exactly 10% from where we are right now. And that would give you a perfect reset for the stock market to bounce off of that level and go on to make all-time new highs. And so don't get me wrong. I, again, I can't predict the future. I'm not saying that I don't think there's going to be a meltdown. But if there is, and if we do go down to that 200-day moving average, hey, I think it will be time to buy Felicia. But I suspect that we're not going to get that low. And it's for the same reasons that we've seen the lack of volatility over the last 13 or 14 months. And that's because overall, the global economy is doing pretty darn good. Oil prices, energy prices, commodity prices, even wage prices. I would say that all these are market indicators that are reasonable and in balance. You know, the price of oil is high enough where energy companies and energy exporting nations like OPEC at $65 or you know $70, $69 on Brent, these are levels that are high enough for these companies and countries to make money and to service their debt. And at the same time, they're not so high that they're putting a crimp on consumers' lifestyles. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It may not be just right, but it isn't far off. And for right now, I don't think we're going to have a meltdown in the stock market. In fact, I plan on holding my positions. I want to see what happens through next week. I want to see if the volatility and the volume of selling increases. I, incidentally, if you look at, at this past week, uh, and even in particular just yesterday on Friday, yes, the stock market was down over 2% in a single day, but the amount of shares trading hands for a, a very volatile very active Friday afternoon. It wasn't out of the ballpark, astronomically, you know, off the charts. The volume on the New York Stock Exchange for Friday was above average, but it wasn't, you know, drastically so. And in fact, it wasn't the highest that we've seen this year. I think it was maybe the fifth or sixth highest day in volume so far this year. So it wasn't a total collapse or a meltdown of the financial systems. Now, we want to watch that. I suspect we will probably get more selling and more volatility on Monday. A lot of people will hear all the negativity and all the, you know, the, the bear market prognosticators over the weekend. And so maybe we're likely to see a lot of people putting in sell orders on Monday. But after that, let's watch the markets. Let's see what happens on Tuesday and Wednesday. I personally think that things are going to subside institutional investors are going to come in and look at this as an opportunity to buy stocks. You know, And then I think it's really important to watch those key moving averages. As I mentioned before, we're about 10% off the 200-day moving average and, oh, I don't know, maybe 2.3, 2.5% off the 50-day moving average. So if we do get a lot of volatility downward next week, maybe we'll hit the 50. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see us bouncing off of that. 
And then if the whole world does fall apart and we drop down 10%, I would really be shocked if we don't bounce off of that 200-day moving average. So what am I telling you to do? I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm telling you what I'm doing. I'm sitting, I'm holding my positions. If we go down to the 50-day moving average, or certainly if we get down to the 200-day moving average, I'm going to look at that as not a time to panic, but a time to buy. And any type of cash reserves I have at that point, I will be putting in. That's what I do. Those are my positions. You need to assess things for yourself and you know, draw your own conclusions. But hey, right or wrong, that's what I think. Thanks for joining me. Until the next episode, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.